Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sheila Wysocki waits for the answering machine. The police always send her to the answering machine, and she always asks the same question. When will you solve Angie's murder? They told her once she was the only one who'd ever asked about the cold case. Everyone else has moved on. But Sheila can't. Angie won't let her. So for the 500th time, she calls again. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're unearthing a murder investigation from the 1980s. Angela Samoda was a bright, charming, popular young college student, and the circumstances of her death left a deep scar on those who loved her. But sometimes, light shines brightest through the dark. As tragic as Angela's death was, this story is about what happened next. When the despair left in her wake drove a close friend to do something extraordinary. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. There's no right or wrong way to respond when a loved one is violently ripped from our lives. No official guidebook, no clear time to move on. Unfortunately, these tragedies are more common than we would hope. This story is about one such tragedy, a brutal murder that touched dozens of lives and left one woman with a burden she carried for 25 years. It begins in Dallas, Texas, in the midnight hours of October 13, 1984. 
Ben McCall sleeps peacefully in his bed. He works in construction and has to get up early the next morning. He wakes with a start as someone knocks on his door. He glances at his clock. It's 1.30 a.m. Disgruntled, Ben throws on his clothes and stumbles to the door. He doesn't know what to expect so early in the morning. He's surprised to find his girlfriend, 20-year-old Angela Samoda, standing at his door. Her long hair and large blue eyes accentuate everything she wears. A black silk jumpsuit, black pumps, and a mischievous grin. Angela has come to tease him for missing out on a wonderful night on the town. Ben's anger at being woken up evaporates. He's pleased to see Angela, but he still has work in the morning. The couple trade lighthearted jabs in the doorway, and after a few minutes, they part ways. With a sheepish grin still on his face, Ben lays back down to rest. He closes his eyes, but as he's about to drift back to sleep, he jolts back awake, this time from his ringing phone. He looks at the clock, 1.45 a.m., just enough time for Angela to get back to her apartment. If this is another joke, it's no longer funny, but he answers it anyway. It's Angela. She says, talk to me. Something in her voice sets him on edge. Angela rambles nervously as strange noises echo in the background. Ben asks her what's going on. She tells him a man is in her condo. He asks to use her bathroom and telephone and she let him in. Ben hears the man's muffled voice. Angela doesn't respond. Instead, she asks Ben, is there a payphone at a nearby convenience store? Ben's sure there is. He hears Angela tell the man, but a moment later, Angela says she'll call back. Before he can stop her, the call disconnects. Ben waits for her return call, but his nerves can't handle it. He picks up the phone and dials her number. She doesn't answer. He tries again. No response. Ben can feel that something is wrong, and he isn't going to wait around for Angela to call him back. He jumps into his truck and speeds down the road to her apartment. The drive takes eight to ten minutes. All the while, Ben continues to try and reach her with his car's cell phone, still to no avail. He reaches her condominium and sees Angela's car parked outside, a sign she hasn't left. He races up to her front door. It's locked. Inside, the lights are off and there's no hint of movement. He knocks. No response. He runs to the back door, also locked. He knocks again, then tries to call. And he can hear her phone ringing through the door. The rest of the place is silent and still. He panics. Where is Angela? Why isn't she answering? His mind races, and in his desperation, he has one last hopeful thought. He drives to the nearby convenience store, thinking that she might be at the payphone, but no one's there. The streets are empty. At 2.17 a.m., after half an hour of panic, Ben calls the police. About 20 minutes later, officers Ken Bajinska and Janice Crowther arrive at Angela's place. 
They wake the property manager and get the keys to Angel's apartment. As the police head inside, they tell Ben to wait by the front door. It must be difficult not to ignore their orders and rush inside. This is his girlfriend, the woman everyone thought he would marry. He spent the past 45 minutes desperately trying to get into her apartment, and now he has no choice but to wait. Inside Angela's condo, Officer Bajenska surveys the living room. So far, there's been no sign of activity. His gaze falls on a single black pump left in the middle of the floor. His pulse quickens. Who takes off just one shoe? He looks towards the bedrooms, eyes wide, scanning for an intruder. Step by step, he makes his way towards the door. He creeps into the bedroom, watchful for any movement. Instead, he finds a grisly scene that would even scar the seasoned police officers who stumble upon it. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The scene in Angela Samoda's bedroom is brutal. What we are about to describe is extremely graphic and potentially disturbing, so listener discretion is advised. Angela's naked body lies sprawled on the bed, drenched in blood. Her chest is viciously mutilated, her heart visible in the carnage, almost as if it has been cut out. And amidst the violence, her wide blue eyes are open, piercing even in death. The killer's work is splattered across the headboard. Blood is conspicuously absent from large parts of her body and manually smeared onto others. Analysts examine the blood splatter and draw several conclusions. First, the killer is a large man who straddled the victim and held her on the bed. Second, he stabbed with his right hand, spreading blood onto the headboard. He held Angela's mouth with his left hand as he attacked. Third, the killer fondled parts of her body either during or after the murder. The scene is so horrific that even the seasoned investigators are shaken. Officer Bajinska later says it looked like evil preying on innocence. But there's no time to waste processing the horror. Crime scene analysts arrive at the scene, and the investigators search the apartment for clues to disappointing results. They find diluted blood on the kitchen counter, 
where the killer washed their hands, but no fingerprints. The phone has been wiped clean. The killer clearly knew how to cover their tracks. The police noticed that a knife is also missing from the knife block. There's no sign of it anywhere in the apartment. They flag it as a possible murder weapon. After scouring the apartment from floor to ceiling, the police are forced to accept a grim reality. The killer left no physical evidence behind, which means the police will have to solve their case the old-fashioned way, by chasing down leads and investigating friends and family members. They know that whenever a woman is killed, the killer is most likely her lover. Later that morning, October 13, 1984, the police interview Ben McCall. He's reeling from the news of his girlfriend's murder, but he starts by telling them about her. He tells them that Angela was incredibly brilliant. She had an exemplary academic record at Southern Methodist University, where she was one of few women studying the burgeoning field of computer science. She was also warm and outgoing. They were always running into people she knew, and Angela always remembered everyone's names. She loved to go out, just as she had on the night of her murder. Ben tells the police Angela spent that night out dancing with two of her friends, Anna Kadala and Russell Buchanan, a young architect who she'd met only a few weeks earlier. They went out to dinner at a local restaurant, then to a couple of nightclubs for dancing. Afterward, Angela dropped her friends off before stopping at Ben's to wake him up. Ben writes this all out in an official statement, filling in the details about the restaurant and clubs as best he can. But the police aren't satisfied. They swab underneath his fingernails, search his truck, and search his apartment, but are unable to find anything that ties him to the murder. By this point, they are confident that Ben is innocent but it's too soon to say anything for certain. Next, they locate and interview Anna Kadala, one of the friends who'd gone bar hopping with Angela that night. Anna tells them everything she can remember. Anna, Angela, and Russell Buchanan had eaten dinner and traveled to several different bars and dance clubs. They had a great time, but Angela made sure to remain sober throughout the night she had been the group's driver. The night wrapped up around one in the morning. Angela and Anna dropped Russell off at his apartment, then the two girls went to Anna's home. Angela left Anna's apartment around 1.15 a.m., and that was the last time Anna ever saw her. Anna's story matches Ben's perfectly. The police thank her for her time and move on to interview their next witness, Russell Buchanan. Unfortunately, when they knock on his door that morning, he doesn't answer. They decide they'll continue looking elsewhere and speak to Russell later. The next break in the case arrives later the same day at approximately 2 p.m. as the county medical examiner's office conducts Angela's autopsy. They find that Angela suffered 18 distinct stab wounds, piercing her heart, lung, and sternum. That sort of damage is only possible with extreme force, confirming the responding officer's impression that her killer was unusually vicious. The autopsy also reveals semen in Angela's vagina and mouth. Based on chemical analysis, its quantity, and its placement, 
Experts determined that Angela's killer raped her either shortly before, during, or shortly after her murder. This semen is the first physical evidence directly linking the killer to the crime scene. Unfortunately, DNA testing is still in its infancy at this time, so the investigators don't know how valuable that evidence can be. But while they aren't advanced enough to match the semen directly with the killer, crime labs can draw other conclusions, such as the killer's blood type. Here's how it works. Different blood types have different markers called antigens that can also appear in people's saliva or other bodily fluids. If this occurs, these people are classified as secretors. Approximately 80% of all people are secretors. However, 20% of people are non-secretors, which means their blood type cannot be determined through other bodily fluids. By testing the killer semen, they determine that he is, in fact, a non-secretor. This is good news for the investigators because it gives them a powerful tool for eliminating suspects from their lineup. Even though Ben McCall has mostly been cleared, the detectives want to make absolutely sure he's not their guy. They test his saliva and discover that Ben is a secretor. In other words, Ben cannot possibly be the killer. With Angela's boyfriend ruled out, the investigators moved on to questioning her family and classmates. Among them is Sheila Wysocki, Angela's best friend. The girls had randomly been assigned as roommates their freshman year of college. Sheila was initially nervous about the pairing, but Angela's warm, unforgettable smile made Sheila feel at home. The girls bonded over their shared experiences of being raised by single mothers and soon grew as close as sisters. Sheila is numb with grief over Angela's murder, but she wants to help the detectives however she can. She tells them anything and everything about Angela that might be worth their time. Based on her testimony, as well as others, the detectives hone in on two persons of interest. First is Angela's ex-boyfriend, but they quickly determine that he is a secretor and rule him out. The second suspect has an airtight alibi. As such, both men are proven innocent, which means they're running out of leads. In fact, they've only got one left. Russell Buchanan, the male friend who went out dancing with Angela on the night of her murder. He was the second to last man to see Angela alive and one of the last people she talked to before showing up at Ben's apartment. That makes him a valuable witness and a potential suspect in the case. The only problem is, in the aftermath of the murder, Russell is nowhere to be found. He's not at his apartment and no one knows where he's gone. His absence immediately heightens the detective's suspicions. They start wondering if Russell killed Angela and then skipped town. Maybe after a night of drinking, he made a sexual advance and she rejected him. Maybe he let his resentment build until she dropped him off at his apartment that night. Maybe instead of going to sleep, he got in his car and followed her back home. It's only a theory, 
but with no other leads, the police are determined to find him. They keep tabs on his apartment in the hopes that he'll turn up. They don't have to wait long. On Sunday, October 14th, Russell flies from Houston to Dallas. He's spent the weekend visiting family and is returning home. Completely oblivious to the tragedy he's about to be caught up in, Russell heads from the airport straight to his workplace. He thinks it's going to be a busy week, so he wants to get ahead of schedule. He has no idea how busy it will actually be. After a few hours of weekend work, he drives home, ready to rest for the night. No sooner is he inside his apartment than he hears someone at the door. The police. Open up. He answers it to find a uniformed officer aiming a shotgun at his chest and a detective holding up a badge. The detective orders Russell to step to the side and keep his hands out of his pockets. He asks Russell if he can search his apartment. It's worth noting Russell's only 23 and he's completely caught off guard in this situation. He never imagined something like this would happen to him and his mind races as he tries to understand what's taking place. The police don't have a warrant, but Russell consents to a search anyway. He figures that if he cooperates, it will help clear up this misunderstanding quickly. But as they step inside, the investigators are greeted by a startling scene. Russell's apartment is filled with knives and spears. Russell doesn't even realize how bad this looks for him, because the police still haven't told him Angela has been stabbed to death. He explains that the weapons belong to his roommate, who just returned from a two-week safari in Africa. The police aren't buying it. They take Russell to the station and make him write a statement. Russell professes his innocence and tells them he went to bed right after Angela dropped him off. When they ask where he'd gone the next morning, he explains that he had an early morning wedding to attend at the local country club. After that, he flew to Houston to spend time with family. The police have Russell take a lie detector test and also ask for a sample of his blood and saliva. He passes the lie detector with flying colors. He seems to be telling the truth. But when the samples get back from the lab a few days later, they tell a different story. Russell is a non-secretor, just like the killer. At this point, detectives are confident that Russell is their man. Not only is he a non-secretor, he's also got no provable alibi and was one of the last known people to see Angela on the night of her murder. But while none of this looks good, it's also entirely circumstantial. It doesn't prove Russell's guilt. The detectives need more. They need Russell to confess. Over the next six months, the investigators are Russell's shadow. He sees officers waiting outside his home. He's publicly embarrassed when they show up to his work. He even learns they've been tracking his class schedules and travel plans. He wants to help with the investigation, so anytime they ask, he goes with them to the station. He willingly endures hours upon hours of interrogations as detectives push and prod him for a confession. 
Eventually, they start directly accusing Russell of murder. They show him crime scene photos and tell him how they think he did it, hoping he'll crack. Russell refuses. Despite only being 23, he stands firm against the pressure, insists he is innocent, and doesn't change his story ever. The police press Russell for six long months. Finally, Russell hires a defense attorney to put a stop to it. The next time the police bring Russell to the station, his attorney tells them to charge his client or take Russell home right now. They don't have the evidence to charge him, so they let him go, but they aren't through with him yet. It's easy to blame the police for going so hard after Russell when they have no concrete evidence, but at this point, they've run down every other lead. They've even investigated potential suspects that Russell suggested, but every other suspect has been officially ruled out. By the end of it, Russell is the only possible suspect they've got. So from the viewpoint of Angela's friends and family, you want the police to dig deeper into Russell. And that's exactly what they do. They come up with one last plan to get Russell to confess. To set their trap, they need someone to get past Russell's barriers. Someone he won't think is working with them. Someone he'll trust. They need Angela's best friend and former roommate, Sheila Wysocki. When she hears what the detectives have in mind, Sheila is terrified. But she agrees. For Angie's sake, she will put herself in danger, going face to face with a prime suspect in her best friend's murder. Eventually, the night to enact the plan arrives. Sheila applies her makeup and tries to ignore her mother's badgering voice. Her body is wrought with nerves, but she can't let it show. After all, her mother's right. What she's about to do is dangerous. By the spring of 1985, after six months of searching for Angela Samota's killer, the Dallas police form a desperate plan. They want 20-year-old Sheila Wysocki to talk to Russell Buchanan face-to-face to see if his story changes, maybe even get a confession if she can. Sheila's mother keeps telling her that it's too dangerous, but Sheila doesn't listen. Grief has numbed her sense of fear, and the prospect of finally getting justice for Angela outweighs all other considerations in her mind. Based on everything the police have told her, Sheila believes Russell is guilty. At first, she was skeptical. But the more she thought about it, the more it made sense. Maybe Russell does make her feel uncomfortable. Maybe he's a little weird. And as the police said, there were no other suspects it could have been. Then Russell's at the door, and it's too late to back out. She puts on a fake smile, answers the door, and gets in the car. Imagine how Sheila must feel during this car ride. She's been haunted by Angela's death ever since investigators showed her the crime scene photos. She can't stop picturing the blood on the walls, her friend's mutilated body. And the police think that the person responsible for all of that is the man sitting next to her now. 
If Russell notices her nerves, he doesn't show it. They reach the restaurant and sit down across from each other. Finally, Sheila steers the conversation to the night of the murder, pushing Russell to talk about how it affected him. He tells her he still can hardly believe it. He describes going out dancing with Angela and how much fun it was. He tells her about the wedding he attended the next morning and his trip to visit family, all details he shared with the police. Meanwhile, Sheila listens for holes, hoping to catch Russell in a lie or a confession. They empty their plates, and the waiter takes their cash. The two walk back to Russell's car together. She feels numb as the conversation comes to a close. He drives her home, drops her off, and leaves. Sheila immediately calls the police and tells them the disappointing news. Russell's story hasn't changed at all. Their trap failed. They thank Sheila for her work and try to console her, promising to get Russell some other way. But Sheila knows their words are empty. She was their last hope, and she's failed them. She's failed Angie. The investigation grinds to a standstill. With all of their leads exhausted, there's nothing left for the police to do. The lead detectives move on to other cases, and Angela's case goes cold. But not for Sheila. Without answers or closure, the grief of Angela's loss overwhelms her. She drops out of university, moves back in with her mother, and gets a job cleaning houses. She has no sense of what she's meant to do next. As Sheila puts it, quote, The biggest problem with any event like that is the not knowing. Not knowing what happened, so that kind of occupies your mind. People that haven't been through it don't understand. The person was there, and then they're not there, and you don't know why. Who did it? How did they do it? We've got to get the person. They have to pay for this. Sheila still believes Russell Buchanan is responsible for Angela's death, and she hates him for his freedom, but there's nothing she can do about it. On the surface, the next few years of her life are perfectly mundane. She falls in love, gets married, and has two sons. Their days are filled with the ordinary challenges of paying bills and raising a family, but under the surface, the scars remain. Sheila keeps a tight rein on her children. She makes her family live in a gated community with round-the-clock security. Her kids think she's paranoid, but she knows that violence can strike at any moment. Twenty years go by like this, until one day, in 2004, everything changes. Sheila is at home alone with not much to do. To pass the time, she gets out her Bible and sits down on her couch to read. Her dyslexia makes it a struggle, but she's determined to try. Her focus ebbs, she starts to drift, but something feels off. Someone is there. She looks to her right and sees... Angie? Angela Samoda looks like she did on the day that they met. She wears a bright, heartwarming smile, 
the same smile that had won Sheila over 20 years ago. Sheila's not sure if she's asleep or if she's awake. She doesn't believe in ghosts, but she's sure the Angela sitting next to her is real. And even though Angela doesn't say a word, Sheila thinks she's come to deliver a message. A message that Sheila receives loud and clear. It's time. She reaches for her nightstand and grabs the phone. She dials the number for the Dallas Police Department, and she has to be transferred to the cold cases department. It's been decades since there's been any progress in Angela's case, but maybe she can light a fire under them, shame them into taking a closer look. Only the operator tells her they don't have a dedicated department for cold cases. As it turns out, this isn't exactly unusual. According to a 2011 survey of U.S. law enforcement agencies, roughly one out of every five large police departments does have a dedicated cold case unit. Given the DPD size, it was not unreasonable for Sheila to hope they had one, but no such luck. And the fact that they don't presents a real problem. For the police to reinvestigate Angela's murder, detectives would have to be pulled away from their active caseload. Without any new evidence to justify reopening a cold case, it makes sense that police would want to prioritize more recent crimes. But the authorities don't simply tell Sheila that Angela's case is low priority. Instead, someone at the police station tells her the case is completely hopeless. They tell her that at some point in the previous 20 years, all of the physical evidence pertaining to Angela Samota's murder was destroyed in a flood. Sheila listens, but it just does not sit right with her. Angela's spirit showed her it was time, and Sheila is not ready to take no for an answer. She knows one of the detectives who worked on the case in the 80s is still with the department. She has them transfer her to his phone, but he doesn't answer. She leaves a message, but he never calls back. To Sheila, this is unacceptable. She calls again, and again. And again, nobody at the station takes her seriously. But Sheila doesn't give up. She spends the next few months calling the Dallas Police Department every chance she gets. Every time she calls, they ignore her. Sheila's frustration mounts. It's obvious that calling isn't getting anything done, but she doesn't know what else she can do. One day, while feeling fed up, Sheila vents to her gated community's head of security. He's impressed by her persistence and dedication and says that she'd make a great private investigator. Suddenly, everything clicks, and Sheila knows what she has to do. Sheila realizes that if she became a private investigator, the police may take her calls more seriously. So over the next several months, Sheila dedicates herself to getting her private investigator's license. She fights through her dyslexia to study for all the relevant legal exams. Her family helps out by drilling her on court cases that might come up. Sometime around 2004 or 2005, she takes the test and passes. She gets her PI license and once again calls the Dallas Police Department. And this time, she still gets ignored. Sheila is angry, but she's not giving up. If the DPD won't help her, 
She figures she'll just have to do their job for them. She puts together a war room dedicated to Angela's case, and she gathers evidence all by herself. It looks exactly as you would picture it. Photo evidence taped to whiteboards, files cluttered on the desk, used coffee mugs stacked in the corners. Sheila looks into every single public record of reported rapes in that place and time. Even as she pours over all available evidence time and time again, she keeps coming to the same conclusion, that Russell Buchanan killed her friend and got away with it. The police thought the same almost 20 years ago. Isn't it time they do something about it? Sheila keeps calling the Dallas Police Department, hoping that eventually someone will listen. 2004 comes and goes. A full year passes with no response and no break in the case. 2005 follows the same pattern. Sheila calls incessantly, no response. By the end of 2006, even Sheila's energy starts to fade. In 2007, she calls for the 700th time. It's routine by now. She's expecting to be sent straight to voicemail. Instead, Detective Linda Crum speaking. a woman introduces herself as Detective Linda Crum. She says her superiors have reopened Angela Samota's case and assigned it to her. Uh, apparently, Sheila's ceaseless calling pushed them to the breaking point. They reopened the case just to get her to leave them alone. But that isn't the best part. Detective Crum takes an interest in the case and discovers the physical evidence is still intact and in police custody. It's unclear if the police lied to Sheila about it being destroyed in a flood or if they genuinely thought it was lost, but at this point, it no longer matters because thanks to recent advances, the killer's semen can be tested for DNA. Sheila finds this news overwhelming. For the first time in 24 years, she has hoped that Angela might finally get justice. But Sheila isn't done waiting. Detective Crum tells her to sit tight. DNA testing takes a long time, and the labs have a backlog. She's not kidding. A full year passes by with no results. Then, in 2009, Sheila finally gets a call. She answers and hears Detective Crum say three unbelievable words. We got him. Sheila can hardly contain her excitement, but the next thing she hears leaves her stunned. Someone has been charged, but it's not who she expected. In fact, it's a name she's never even heard before. Donald Bess. Sheila's initially taken aback. For years, she's been sure Russell Buchanan was the killer. But as Detective Crom explains, it all starts to make more sense. Back in 1984, Donald Bess was a 36-year-old convicted rapist who had recently gotten out on parole. He was traveling through Dallas with some friends on the night of Angela's death. The detectives aren't sure how their paths crossed, but they speculate that Bess saw Angela at a bar and followed her home. 
Most importantly, his DNA is a perfect match with the semen found at the crime scene. There is no doubt that Donald Bess is the man who raped and killed Angela Samoda. Only a few months after the murder, Bess raped another victim and was sentenced to life in prison. He spent most of the previous 24 years behind bars, even though he was never suspected of killing Angela until now. Sheila is stunned by this revelation. She asks when he'll be going to court and is told the trial will take another year. In 2010, Sheila clears her work schedule and makes her way to the courthouse. She watches as the bailiff escorts Donald Bess out. He's tall, overweight, and worse for wear. He wears a black suit with a blue striped tie. But the way he stands and moves reminds her of a lumbering animal. She gives him a nickname. Donald Beast. The Beast. The trial takes place over several days. The prosecutors retell Angela's story, and the tragedy of her death brings tears to Sheila's eyes once more. Once the presentation is over, the jury heads out. They return to announce their verdict. Donald Bess is guilty of the murder of Angela Samoda. For his crimes, they sentence the beast to death. Sheila Wysocki's crusade finally ends. The existential dread that gnawed at her for decades dissipates, but there's still one last thing that weighs on her mind. For more than 20 years, she had hated Russell Buchanan, thinking he had killed her best friend. She thought he'd gotten away with it, but now she has an apology to make. She looks up Russell's information and calls him. Just like 26 years earlier, they planned to meet for dinner and discuss the night of Angela's death. When they finally arrive, Sheila is emotional. She looks Russell in the eyes and apologizes for everything he went through. She expects Russell to be upset. After all, he knew he was innocent the whole time, and he was the victim of unjust suspicion. But instead of getting angry, Russell thanks her. Just like Sheila, he lived his entire life under the shadow of Angela's death. He knew the police had reason to suspect him, but he had no way of proving his innocence on his own. Now, thanks to Sheila's persistence, everyone knows what he knew all along. He is innocent. He is free. And for the first time since Angela's murder, Sheila realizes she is too. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with another Cold Case. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. 
Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Giles Hofseth, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, sound designed by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Roy.